Hello again, friends, and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is to work through the entire Bible together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're not rushing through, we're taking time to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life from here on in. And it doesn't matter whether you're connecting with me every day on the days these episodes appear. New episodes are in fact launched, usually Monday to Friday every week. But you're very welcome to go right back to the very beginning and follow along at whatever pace suits you. And if you are here for the first time, then why not click on the subscribe button and make the decision to make the Bible, the study of the Bible, part of the rhythm of your daily life. Today's episode, we're in Mark. We're in episode four in our series together at Mark, and I'll be looking at the further objections to Jesus. So with that said, you're very welcome. Do hang on at the end if you'd like to know ways in which you can receive an episode notes page for each episode and a full transcript of everything that is in fact said. So with that said, we'll drop back into the main text, picking up at the beginning of Mark in episode four of our time together in Mark, and I'll see you at the end. Bye-bye for now. Who could possibly object to someone who talked about the love and forgiveness of God and simply went around healing people? Well, it seems many did. So although, as I suggested in yesterday's episode, the main accusation against him was when he dared to say that he came to forgive people of their sins, and it was because of that they accused him of blasphemy. So that's the main charge, the main accusation against Jesus. And we did talk about that at length in yesterday's episode. But it was only the beginning, for there were other charges levelled against him. So what are those other accusations? And how did he deal with them? Well, that's what I'd like us to look together at today. Now, it's a long passage of scripture we're going to cover today. We're going to pick up in Mark 2, 13 and cross right over into chapter 3 and finish at verse 6. But the reason I'm doing it in one section like this is because it is in this bridging section of scripture that we'll see four different charges will be laid against Jesus. The first is he's charged with eating with sinners. Secondly, both he and his followers are accused of not fasting. Then third, there is a charge made against him of working on the Sabbath. And the fourth and final accusation we look at today is the fact that he went around healing on the Sabbath. So these are four additional charges made against him, primarily by the religious hierarchy of his day. What I'd like to do is what we always do, is walk through the passage verse by verse, but in doing that we'll note carefully each accusation made as it appears, but we need to also note how Jesus responds to those accusations. I think what happens here is really quite fascinating. It's not only relevant for him, but it's relevant for us, and in fact I would say many churches and Christian groups today. So let's take a look at the first charge, and the first charge appears right where we're picking up in the text in verse 13, and that's where it's, uh, the charge is he's eating with sinners. So Matthew 2, verses 13 and 14 begin by telling us, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. 
As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, what you may not have picked up at this time is most Bible experts believe that Levi is another name for Matthew. And he's sitting in the tax office and Jesus either goes up to him or as he passes by says, follow me. And this guy simply gets up and follows him. Now, in order to appreciate what's going here, I think it's helpful to understand a couple of things. For one thing, at this time there was a road that crossed the entire land of what today we call Israel and it led all the way from east to west. Sometimes it's referred to as the Silk Road or the Spice Road and it ran all the way from Europe to the Middle East. In fact, it would soon turn and split and turn south down to Africa but before the main route continued heading off east into Asia, China and even beyond. And the important thing to note is that this road runs right across Galilee. It is one of the world's main roads in ancient times and placed along that route there were custom houses. So when the text tells us that Levi or Matthew was sitting in a booth, it is a receipt of customs booth. That's what's probably been talked about here. And the other thing you need to know that's deeply significant that this guy was a Jew and all of this tax collecting was being done for the benefit of the Roman occupying force. The Jews hated the fact that the Romans were occupying their country, so anybody who would cooperate with the Romans was an anathema to them. If you did something like workers as a tax collector, you were completely ostracized by the Jewish community. You were in fact excommunicated from the synagogue, and furthermore, you became a complete and utter social outcast. You know, you couldn't even be a witness in a Jewish court. So Jesus comes along here, and of all people he could choose to call, he calls someone who's a tax collector for the Roman authorities. A turncoat, if you like, and he turns to him and says, follow me. Now Matthew is seen to not be alone in following him, but in addition to making the decision to follow him, we see he also invites Jesus to his own home to eat with his friends. And verse 15 tells us, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. So there's other tax collectors back at Levi's house, but it talks about tax collectors and sinners. So who are the sinners mentioned here and what was their sin? Now, when you and I think of sinners, we're maybe inclined to think of members of criminal gangs or maybe thieves or robbers. Now, all these types of people might be included here, but that's not what the text is meaning primarily to say. That's not what it's talking about here. You see, the Jews of that day referred generally to Gentiles, any Gentiles, collectively as what they just call sinners. So what the text saying here is in the fact that he ate with tax collectors and sinners, it's primarily talking about the fact that Jesus is eating with ordinary people, including Roman collaborators, just ordinary people of different backgrounds to the Jews themselves. One commentator, a guy called R.D. Lusk, I read, explained it this way. We need not assume that all these people were sinners just in the moral sense of the term, the word translated sinner on this occasion has a wider significance, meaning anyone who breaks the moral law. But at that time, it also meant anyone who did not follow the scribal law. 
a man who committed adultery and a man who ate pork were both sinners. The man who was guilty of theft and the man who simply did not wash his hands in the required way were both considered sinners. So the guests of Matthew would include both those who played fast and loose with their moral life alongside those whose only sin was not to observe the scribal rules and regulations. You see, the main point here is not that Jesus is eating with moral sinners, it is the fact that he's eating with ordinary people, with non-Jews, and that for them is a problem. And they break their religious rules, or perhaps a better word would be, they broke the religious taboos. And it is the breaking of these taboos that Jesus is guilty of here. And this is the first of the four accusations that they'll make against him in the passage. It continues. Now it happened after he was dining at Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciple, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now the scribes, these people described as the scribes, are looking at Jesus and looking what he's doing here with contempt, but probably also with a little fear, because they knew that what he was doing was potentially contaminating or at least undermining their whole religious system. And Jesus' reply is simply, healthy people don't need a doctor. It's sick people who need a doctor. In other words, I didn't come to spend my time with these so-called righteous people, but I came simply to call sinners to repentance. You guys, you see situations like this as an opportunity for contamination, but I see them as an opportunity for conversion for coming to faith. So that was the first objection, that he ate with sinners. And his response to it was, yes, I do. And I do it because I care more about loving people than I do care about your religious rules and regulations. But a second charge is made against him, and that is the one that his followers and he didn't fast. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now again, we just need to pause and take a moment to think about what's really going on here. It's true the Mosaic Law required fasting. Yes, it did. But only once a year. But look and see that these Pharisees and these scribes added somewhat to that, shall we say. They had increased it to the fact that they required fasting twice a week. So they saying to Jesus, you don't fast. But what they're really saying is you don't fast the way we do. Now, let me also add that this type of fasting that they took part in had become a bit of a show. When they fasted, they deliberately used stones to whiten their face to make themselves look pale and weak. A first century version of virtue signaling. And they also deliberately put on shabby garments and they paraded themselves outside to demonstrate to everyone that they were in the middle of a fast. Look at me, they said, I'm fasting, I'm righteousness. And they did this twice a week. So they come to Jesus and say, you're not doing this. In fact, they even say the disciples of John the Baptist, they fasted, but why don't you and your disciples fast? 
So the real accusation here to Jesus and his followers is you're not being religious enough. That's the accusation. Here is Jesus' answer. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So he's answering their objection with an illustration. He's saying, look, this is like a wedding. It's a celebration, and you don't fast at a celebration. A wedding is a time of joy, and I'm here, so it's a time of joy. This is not a time of mourning. Today is a time of celebration and joy. However, a day is coming when the focus of their joy will be taken away, and then, of course, they will fast. Then he uses another illustration and says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear even worse. What does that mean? To put it simply, I believe he's saying something new will always create a tension and will eventually destroy or damage something that was old. He says, you lot, well, they're fasting twice a week as an act of religious worship, but Jesus is saying, look, I'm bringing a new way of worshipping in here. I am bringing something new, something better, that will replace this old thing. He then uses another of his word pictures. Verse 22, he said, said, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskin bursts, and both the wine and the wineskin are ruined. No, pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, this is a reference to the fact that in those days, they used goat skins as containers for wine. And if you put new wine into an old brittle wineskin, when it fermented, it would expand and it would actually burst the bag. So again, Jesus is saying, I'm bringing something new and the new thing will, well, it will replace. In fact, it will destroy the old thing. And notice he finishes by saying, new wine is put in new wineskins and the new wine will then be preserved. By choosing to illustrate it in this way, he said, I am bringing something completely new and something that's going to last. It's going to replace the way in which things have been done in the past. It's going to replace what you guys are doing and it's going to replace it, substitute it with something better. And that better thing is in fact going to be permanent. So Jesus is directly telling them, I didn't come to perpetuate some old thing that you've established, and I certainly didn't come to prolong the teaching of you Pharisees and your religious rituals and the way you try and approach God. I have come to bring something new, and the new thing that I offer is salvation. A salvation, but this time without works or religious rituals, a salvation is that is by grace and brings great joy, which is why we celebrate. So their second accusation, let's be clear, it's not just that he's not fasting, they're saying he's not religious enough, defining religion as the doing of various acts and rituals. But there's another accusation, a third accusation made against Jesus, and that is one that he's working on the Sabbath. The text continues and tells us one Sabbath, Jesus was walking through the cornfields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, this is a separate accusation to the one of fasting. That stood alone. This is one of working on the Sabbath. 
Now, the Mosaic law allowed for the situation that if you were travelling across the country and you were hungry, if you walked through a cornfield, you could pluck corn and eat it as you walked. The only restriction was that you couldn't harvest a crop because that would be considered work and you could not labour. In other words, you couldn't use a sickle or a scythe because that would be working. But if you were hungry and you were walking through a field, you could eat ears of corn as you walked. Now, you wouldn't be surprised to hear the Pharisees stopped even doing that on the Sabbath. They took the ordinance given in the Ten Commandments about keeping the Sabbath holy, and they created 39 specific activities that broke the Sabbath law, thereby defiling a huge number of everyday activities at work. By their one act of plucking grains of corn and eating them as they walked, according to the view of the Pharisees, they were now in fact breaking four of their 39 Sabbath rules. The four rules in relation to working on the Sabbath that Jesus is accused of breaking here are 1. The reaping of corn, 2. The winnowing, taking the leaves off the corn head, 3. Thrashing the corn, simply by rubbing the corn between their fingers as a way of removing the husk as they walked, and finally, by doing those things they were accused of working by supposedly, believe it or not, preparing a meal. So they say to Jesus, you have broken these rules and that's what we accuse you of. And Jesus answers this accusation and this is what he says, picking up in verse 25. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. So this is a startling development in Jesus' response. In the story, he quotes, you see, only the priests were meant to eat this bread, but they knew that the story said that David went into the house of God and ate that consecrated bread, and David was not a priest. Yet he not only ate it, but he gave it to his men so that they could eat it as well. So what's going on here? Why has Jesus used this illustration and what does this mean? Well, it's really pretty straightforward. He's simply saying they were hungry and they ate the only thing that was available to them at the moment. And Jesus replies and says what that means. And he says this. So he says to them, you see, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. In other words, you Pharisees have got things completely back to front as always. God made man, he said. Then he made, he made the Sabbath for man to serve him. God created the Sabbath day to give humanity a day of rest so that they didn't need to work on that day. That's all. And he gave it because God knew it's not a good idea for us to be working all the time. It's good to have time away from work, to spend time focusing on God and all the other blessings in life that we have, like family and enjoyment together. What you have done, Jesus says, if you've decided that it's the other way around, that man is made to serve the Sabbath. According to you, it's the Sabbath that has become the important thing and that that is what you have to serve. And Jesus says, no, that's the wrong way around. It's the human being that is important and the Sabbath was given to sustain and invigorate us and to allow us to take time out to invigorate our relationship with God. 
In creating these man-made regulations about the Sabbath, you're not only inverting the whole thing, but he says in effect that you're ruining the whole thing. And then it's, en- it's not enough that he says this, but then he adds this controversial line, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what he said? The sa- scribes accused him of breaking the, s- the Sabbath and Jesus says, I am the Son of Man and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, they got that immediately. They knew what that meant when he claimed to, uh, by saying this, that he was claiming to be the Messiah. And by doing so, he was claiming, of course, to be the Lord of the Sabbath. His response to this accusation of disrespecting the Sabbath is pretty jaw-dropping. In effect, he says, I am the one who made the Sabbath and I can regulate it in any way I want. And if someone is hungry, I say let them eat. I care more about people than I do your religious rules and regulations. When people are hungry, let them eat. And when people are thirsty, let them drink. The point, his point is always the same. I came ultimately to bring joy and to save people from their sin. And I'm not going to let you prevent that happening because of your religious rules and regulations. These things that you've cobbled together, which were given for your good, have now become a barrier. Or you're using it as a barrier to place a barrier between people and God. So here we have the third accusation made against Jesus, and that was he worked in the Sabbath. But there's one more. There's a final fourth accusation we're going to look at today. And it is the one that he's accused of healing on the Sabbath. You've heard me right. The fourth accusation against Jesus is you're doing good on the Sabbath effectively. We're told that in the opening section of chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2 say, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So the only reason these guys are watching him is that they're on a mission to try and find something else to accuse him of, and they do. But Jesus is well aware of this. And still, Jesus goes up and says to the shriveled man in verse 3, Stand up in front of everyone. In other words, Jesus is setting the scene here. He's going to make a public demonstration, make a public display of what he's about to do. Then Jesus asked them, so he's turned to the the cynical onlookers, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he asks them this question. Which is lawful in the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? That's a very good question. He then pauses and then he asks another question. On the Sabbath, is it better to save life or to kill? And it tells us they remained silent. Now the answer to this question is pretty obvious, isn't it? Of course it's better to do good. It's better to help someone or even save someone than turn your back on someone just because it's the Sabbath. So then turning to the man with the withered hand, it tells us, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Should we be surprised, really, that Jesus was angry? Because some people had come up and taken his father's ordinances, gifts that were meant to serve us, and turned them into religious regulations that actually prevented one not only from getting closer to God, but also from ministering and helping and serving other people, to turn them into something that actually prevented people from doing good. 
I believe that's why he's described as being upset about this. He's upset at the hardness of their hearts. They lack compassion to the point that they were completely insensitive now to what God wanted them to do. They weren't looking at this man or indeed anybody else as people with needs. They were looking at people only from a point of view as what accusation could they make against them and what could they make against him for helping them. And Jesus is distressed at the state of their stubborn hearts. So he calls this man up in front of the crowd and he tells them to stretch out his hand and it tells us that his hand is completely restored. Now when Luke records this story in his version, he adds the little details that the Pharisees are filled with rage. Jesus has just healed a man, healed a man who's lived with suffering and disability all his life. And the Pharisees' reaction is, well, they're angry, they're furious. Now Mark's account just sticks to the bare facts and simply tells us, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Don't miss this. Something important is going out here. Notice that they went out and they plot. They make a deal with these guys called the Herodians. You need to understand that these Herodians were the very enemies of the Pharisees. Herod was the king and the Herodians were a political party that collaborated with Herod and the Romans. And the Pharisees and the Herodians up to this point were sworn enemies. In fact, one scholar I read, a guy called Zev Garber, said this about it. This demonstrates the length to which the Pharisees would go. No Pharisee would normally have anything to do with a Gentile or a man who did not keep the law because such people were unclean. The Herodians were in fact the courtly entourage of Herod and therefore were ceremonially unclean and represented the Romans and their occupying force and oppression that it held over them. The Pharisees are entering into literally what they would have defined by their own terms as an unholy alliance. But they're so filled with an irrational hatred for Jesus that they're willing to make an alliance with the people they most considered their enemies. And the text tells us that this plot together is made not just to undermine Jesus but it's revealed that they make a plot with the Herodians on how they might actually kill Jesus. Their plan is together to destroy him and this we see the beginning of what will end with Jesus and his crucifixion. Okay let me sum this passage up that we've looked at today. This passage lists four objections, four accusations that are made against Jesus. Remember one He was eating with sinners. Two, he's not fasting. And three, he's working on the Sabbath. And then fourth, he's healing on the Sabbath, doing good on the Sabbath. In doing these things, Jesus was not doing anything that was a violation of the Mosaic law. What he's doing, he's without doubt breaking these add-on scribal laws, the man-made rules and regulations added by the Pharisees afterwards. That's the reality of what's going on. So what should we take away from all this? Well, note and note carefully, please. In answering their objections, Jesus demonstrates that he cares more about people than he does about religious regulations. Jesus came to save people. He came to bring joy to people. He came to show forgiveness to people. And he came to show mercy to people. So the big takeaway here is don't let your religious rules and regulations get in the way. Get in the way of you ministering love and the forgiveness of God to other people. 
the Christian faith is all always about loving people. It's loving God first, of course, but thereby, thereafter, in response to having received that love, going out and loving our own neighbours also. Friends, it's always about people. Christianity, true Christian faith, is always about people. It's always about relationship and not regulations. I would like to conclude today's time together studying this in reading, I think, which is one of the finest statements I've read on this issue in William Barclay's analysis of this passage. It was written by Barclay, is a, a Scottish guy, theologian in fact, who wrote a series of commentaries and study guides in the New Testament from about the late 40s through to the late 60s. When it comes to the New Testament, he's one of three writers I would claim as my primary influences. And he said this in a better way than I ever could, and I'll finish with that today. To the Pharisee, religion was ritual. It meant obeying certain rules and regulations. Jesus broke these regulations, and they were because of that they were genuinely convinced that made him a bad man. It was like the man who believes that religion consists of going to church, reading the Bible, saying grace at meals, and carrying out external acts which are looked upon as religious, and who yet never puts himself out to do anything for anyone else. He has no sense of sympathy, no desire to sacrifice. He lives in a serene, rigid orthodoxy, and is deaf to the call of the needy, and blind to the tears of the world. However, to Jesus, religion was service. It was love of God and love of men. Ritual was ir irrelevant compared with love and action. To Jesus, the most important thing in the world was not the correct performance of ritual, but the spontaneous answer to the cry of human need. I do hope that helps you get things in the right balance and in the right priority. That's it for today. Bye for now. Okay, friends, that's been great having you with me here today. I do hope that you've enjoyed our time together. Can I remind you that new episodes are posted every day, Monday to Friday, and you've got one of three choices if you're here for the first time. Just carry on from where you've picked up today, or maybe go back to the beginning of this series, or perhaps, as some do, make the decision to go right back to the start and to follow along at whatever pace it takes you. This is a long-term commitment, friends, anyway. We're going to take our time together through the Word of God. I estimate it'll take us 10 years in total. We're about two and a half years in. You see, we do alternative Old and New Testament books each time in each season, with a few bonus episodes in between. So we're about 20 to 25% of the way through. So it's quite okay to just go right back to the very beginning and follow along with the pace that suits you. A few little extra bits to tell you. The podcast can be subscribed wherever you get your podcasts from, whatever your favourite podcast channel is. But there are links, active links through to additional resources like an episode notes page, a transcript of each and every podcast, 
and even links to places like the social networks and LinkedIn and in fact the YouTube which as I record this in 2023 YouTube audio is coming online soon so that's probably going to be the place where I'll host the long-term archive it'll always be in buzzsprout.com but in order to find an episode you perhaps will have to stream back well at the minute there's 500 episodes there so it can involve a lot of swishing your smartphone if you want to get back to something a few hundred episodes ago the beauty of youtube is it will allow me to place audio versions there which will be sorted by playlist initially by book but also in the future by theme and there's also the place where you can support this ministry it is due to the fact that a few people have made the decision to partner with me to become patrons of my work on places like the patreon website that this podcast is able to be free and Lord willing will continue to be available free on all the made podcast platforms. So thank you to them and thank you so much for joining me. And I do hope I will see you back here tomorrow or whatever day it is for you on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.